0: a little cartoon as we're talking about health it says my doctor told me to avoid any unnecessary stress so i didn't open his bill um, that was a good way to start um, health is such a we can move on thanks Lars. <laughs> health is sort of a moving target sometimes isn't it trying to hang on to good health There's gradual and sudden things that, gradual things that happen to us, there's sudden changes that come, there's accidents that happen, there's pesky cold and flu, and then suddenly we find there's developing chronic issues that need to be addressed as well. We know that some of our health issues can be addressed by better habits and healthy habits and others are just random and capricious, no matter what we've done to improve our health or maybe what we've done to undermine our health, some things just happen to some people and not to others. But there is a certain level at which things that we do have a a measure of control over, and especially as we move to the health, not just of physical health, but the health of organizations or entities or families. We know in a growing sense in the corporate world, uh, the importance not only of financial health, but of organizational health is there as well. In families, we struggle with that. We make jokes about dysfunctional families and yet you know the pain in a family where there's some brokenness that we can't get past and it feels like something is, is a little bit sick and we need to find ways to fix it and learn to live with it. We find in working dynamics and relationships, either in a, in a healthy situation, it's life-giving in a, in a sick situation, somehow those interactions drain us and discourage us. And we're being reminded here that churches also experience a level of health, and health can go up and down, and there can be seasons of of great, uh, great depth and growth, and there can be seasons of hurt and pain as well. We're being reminded that church size, church growth, and the amount of program activity are not necessarily the best indicators of church health. They can be, but aren't always. And so we're in this series that we began last week called Healthy Church. If you were not able to be here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to last week's message. It has been uploaded. It's on the website. And uh, you can listen to that as we sort of laid the foundation for this. I'm going to be challenging you to listen to all the messages, whether you're here or not. Not because I think I'm a fantastic preacher, but because I am committed to us uh, assessing and strengthening the health of this church. And I'm challenging you, inviting you to be on board with that as well. We're talking about healthy church. We are revisiting some of the things that we have learned about our church, especially in the last four to five years. We're revisiting some of the vision that we've worked on, the changes that we've brought, the planning that we have tried to put into place to address some of the areas of of health and growth. We did some survey work to assess health and so we are uh, reacquainting ourselves with the criteria that we use and those are the 10 healthy missional markers. You see them listed on this. uh, This is supposed to be like at the nurse's station. My wife came up with this idea but that's what these are here that we'll be looking at. They're also on the back of the insert in your bulletin and we'll keep those on the back through the whole series to remind us what these healthy missional markers are. It's reminding some of us who've been around a while and it's uh, bringing you on board if you're newer to us, these healthy missional markers that we've done this assessment around. But we're also reinforcing the most vital indicator of health and that is our devotion to Jesus. Our devotion to Jesus, our commitment to pursue Him, depth in our relationship with Him and to pursue His priorities for our life together and our mission in the world. So this is what we're saying each week, that what makes a church a healthy church? We're looking at several markers that will help us answer that question, but in and under and through it all must be our deepening devotion to Jesus and our commitment to what he calls his church to be and to do. We did a couple different surveys. We did the same survey twice, the Pulse survey. We did it first in the the fall of 2011 and then we did the second time early in uh, 2014. And in that, there were, uh, uh, we were rated on, on how we answered questions around these 10, marker, 10 markers. In both years, in 2011-2014, the highest one was global perspective and engagement. Our commitment to mission is high, and it came through in how we graded ourselves and our health. And we'll talk more about that actually on Pentecost Sunday, May 24th. It's a Memorial Day weekend. If you have plans, change them, be here. You need to be here for that. So. Everybody else can tell you to change your plans. It's time for the church to do that, okay? So, (laughs) of course, I can say that and nothing happens, but that's okay. Um, I have no power, but um, listen to it if you are gone that weekend. Seriously, global engagement and global perspective perspective engagement was number one, but close number two, both times scoring very high, was the centrality of the word of God. Other areas we showed some signs of weakness and need for growth, but one thing that we rated ourselves high on was the centrality of the word of God to our life together. There were also some open-ended questions that you answered at the, at the end of the poll survey, both years. And in uh, and the first time we did it around, um, we just got, we didn't get all the raw answers. We just got some composites that those who administer this test put together and said, these are the things that you seem to name about your church that are your three greatest strengths in three areas where we see that you need to grow. And we wrestled with all of those. We liked the three strengths and the ones that we had to grow where we've worked with those things. But that first, uh, in 2011, when we got the results, those three strengths, the top one again, was our our commitment to the scriptures. It said this in the 2011 report. It says, Many of the open-ended comments gave testimony to the importance of being Bible-based, both in the church's history and in its present. There's a strong heritage here that is being lived out in this generation. Those comments just serve to illustrate the reality of the survey score for centrality of the word, which was one of the higher numerical scores. This is not just effective pulpit ministry, which was mentioned by many, but is displayed in the reality that at least in 2011, those who took the survey reported 76% of respondents are in a group studying the Bible together at least twice a month. That was Sunday school, small groups, a Bible study fellowship, community Bible study, whatever. 76 reported then of being involved in Bible study beyond what you get here on Sunday morning. In 2014, the Pulse survey was the same score. The centrality of the word came through high. It only underscores and declares we love the word here, don't we? We love the word of God. That's one of the reasons I love to preach because I love the word of God and I want you to love it more and to get into it more. We love the word of God here. The question needs to be asked in terms of our health. How are we doing moving from that love and familiarity of the word or sometimes the defense of the word of God, how are we doing to truly let it form Christ in us and move us to live more fully for him? That's the health. The health comes not just what we know, but how we let it form who we are. How is it inspiring us and encouraging us and moving us towards pursuing the priorities of Christ? And so that's why today we want to look at the centrality of the Word of God. We're going to look at it through uh, four lenses, of, uh, kind of sort of some word pair lenses, I call them here. The first word pair is information and formation. The second pair is story and stories. Thirdly is personal and public, in terms of our reading of the Word. And then fourthly, we want to come back to Christ by looking at both the written Word and the living Word. Beginning with information and information. Our text this morning that Emily read all the way through, should be through verse 17, my bad, not hers, tells us that the word of God is God breathed and inspired. It's written by human beings to particular people in particular situations. I read something this week that said the Bible is not written to us. It was written to people a couple thousand years ago, but it's written for us. (laughs) It was written by specific people at a specific time in particular situations. Yet also it reveals bigger truths and realities about God and how we are to live in relationship to him. The word of God guides and forms everything we do as believers. And so it must be central to who we are and to what we do. But we must remember that it comes to us not just as information to be taught, interpreted, learned, memorized, proclaimed, and defended, It does come as information, but it also comes to form us, to transform us into fully devoted followers of Christ. It is information, but it is also for our formation. Our being our personal formation as believers, but also our formation as a body of believers. The word forms us and shapes us and leads us towards Christ. It's not just information about God, but it's also about knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God. This is so tied into our history as an evangelical covenant church. The word has always been central to covenanters. It not only is one of the healthy missional markers that we're using to check vitality, but it's listed as number one of our six affirmations as a covenant. What do we believe? We go to these six affirmations, and number one is the centrality of the word of God. Our movement, what is the Evangelical Covenant Church now, started as a Bible study movement in Sweden in the middle of the 19th century. It began as Bible studies. It began as a small group movement. Those small groups were called conventicles. They were for deeper study. They were for devotion to Jesus and they were for worship together. These faithful people, they would go to the state church in the morning and they would receive information about the Bible. And at night, they would gather together. They put the coffee pot on and they would gather then in conventicles to worship joyfully. They'd sing those crazy new praise choruses in the evening, but then they dug into the word of God and they proclaimed Their oneness with Christ with great joy. That is our history, people. That's what we come from. Whether you're Swedish or not doesn't matter. That is the heritage that we have as a church, as believers. Not our ethnic heritage, but our spiritual heritage. And then at the same time that was happening, they were being heavily influenced by pietism that was sweeping up from Germany. And pietism always emphasized the relationship with Jesus. The relationship with Jesus, it emphasized deep devotion and a missional life that resulted from it. Not just keeping Jesus all to me, but living in Christ and then moving out towards others who need him. These early Bible studies were heavily influenced by pietism, a love for the word, but being formed by the word to be lovers of Jesus and servants of Jesus. It's a word also that renovates and equips. I hadn't used these words before, but in preparation for the message today, I looked at a video. You can look it up too on, on covchurch.org or covchurch.tv. But it was, uh, it's on this, this point, the centrality of the word of God. And it's produced by the covenant and it uh, features two of our professors from North Park Seminary. Klein Snodgrass and Paul Koptak. And in this video, I think it's about 25, 27 minutes long, uh, Paul and Klein talk about the centrality of the word to us as believers uh, in the covenant church. And at one point, Klein Snodgrass says, being biblical is not easy. Being biblical is not easy. It brings renovations in our life. In other words, not just knowing the Bible, if we're going to let the Bible really get into us and form us, it's not going to be easy. Because it's going to change us. It's going to, he used the word renovations. I don't know if that was shortly after he had concluded a renovation on his home, but if you've done a renovation on your home, you know that it's really the final, pro- the, the planning is fun and the final product is fun, but in between, I always tell people your life is not hard because you are doing a remodel. You chose this, <laughs> this is not suffering. But it is kind of a pain because it never goes the way you want it to go. It always costs more than you want it to go. And if you've never done a re- renovation, spend a couple hours on HDTV and you'll know how horrible these people's lives are until their project is done and they have the holy grail of granite countertops and stainless steel and everything's fine. But anyway, but, but renovations can be a pain when you're in the midst of them and the hassle in the midst, but the outcome is good and, and sometimes those renovations that happen to us can be painful and difficult and we wonder when it's going to be done and why it's costing us so much time and energy. And yet God sometimes is doing that transforming work in us and making us more like Christ. Being biblical is not easy. It brings renovations in our lives, but it's a a good outcome. Also, in my study, I looked anew at this passage from 2 Timothy. I've been familiar with this passage for years. This is the passage we always quote about the inspiration of the Bible and why we have the Bible. And it talks about it being useful for correction and reproof and for training in righteousness but a word, a word or a phrase popped out that I hadn't noticed before, and it's in the final words of 17 that we didn't read yet, and so now I'll read them. It's strange in said, all these things, so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ooh, I'd never noticed that before. I'd always focused on that. It's inspired, it's for correction, and I've defended that, and I've preached about the Bible before. I've been doing this for a long time. I'd never noticed that it said, so that all of God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, not fully equipped to answer all the questions in a Bible quiz, not fully equipped to hit a home run at Bible baseball, which I never played as a kid, but some of you did. To Be thoroughly equipped for good works, every good work. Equipped, we love that word. It's a word we we speak of when we talk about spiritual gifts. If you know the fourth chapter of Ephesians, we read this just last night with the confirmation kids. I went over this text of of God gave gifts to people so that the church would be equipped and built strong as a body of believers. We're equipped by the gifts of the Spirit. And the word of God equips us as well. We like that word so much, we include it in our vision statement as a church. That we imagine ourselves in an inviting community that is equipping people to go make a kingdom difference. And the equipping is here where we grow as deep disciples and we do it in and through and around and with the word of God. It's an equipping word, equipped for every good work. The good works are those kingdom different things that we do here and outside. The word of God is information, but it does a work of formation. Formation. This is the shift that we've noticed in terms of titles and church departments from Christian education to spiritual formation. Some people think like, oh, it's just a cultural thing, everybody says you've got to do it. Well, education sometimes means these are the facts you've got to learn. Christian education is information. Christian formation says, what's it doing to who we are? And that's why some of these titles have shifted over the years. Information and formation. Another word pair that helps us keep the word central is the two words story and stories. Story and stories. Or something I read this week said the difference between metanarrative and Bible trivia. How many use the word metanarrative as your, in your daily vocabulary on a weekly basis? Yeah, I, I don't really either. So I looked it up. And the, the definition is really confusing. So here's the Scott Gillen version of the definition. A metanarrative is one big story or narrative that ties together all the little narratives. A meta-narrative says there's all these different little stories, but there's one big story that ties it together. Now, popular philosophy and postmodern philosophy says there is no meta-narrative. There's random chance, there's all kinds of stories that are being told and written and lived out around the world, but there is no meta-narrative. But people of the word, the people of God know that there is. There is a big story that ties it together. There is a God who is at work. There is a God who is revealing himself and tying all of these narratives together. It is the story of God and it is the story of God's people. The Bible is the story of God. It is several different books by several different writers over several different centuries in at least three different languages. Some of it is poetry. Some of it is allegory. Some of it is history. Some of it is letters. Some of it is instructions. Some of it is exciting and thrilling. Some of it is dull and odd and boring when you read it some ways. Some of it is fun. And some of it is deeply moving. But it's all one big story that God is writing. From creation to the fall into sin to God's loving pursuit of his people to bring them to redemption to promise the Savior to bring Christ for Christ's sacrificial death to forgive sins to his resurrection to give us hope that we can have a heavenly hope in which we will live forever. It's one story. The problem is sometimes we just learn the stories and not where or how they fit. There's some great stories out of Exodus in the life of Moses. There's some great stories about Joshua who fit the battle of Jericho, which means he. it took me several years but I find found out that fit meant f- fought. Maybe you all knew that all along, but he fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came a-tumbling down. Daniel's story. I mean, Dan. how many people have you, how many times have you heard the story of Daniel, the fiery furnace, and all the other stories that, uh, and the stories of Jesus, the great miracles, water to wine, Stories, songs, and details. But sometimes those can shift into places of trivia. They can become parts of, parts of jokes or parts of, uh, of songs that we might sing that make reference to a, a miracle. But how and where do they fit in the big story? And sometimes we sell ourselves short, and sometimes we sell our children short by just telling them the stories without making sure that they know the story. What does this miracle tell us about what God is doing? What does the exodus and the parting of the Red Seas, where there's all kinds of jokes about the parting of the Red Seas, but what was God doing? It was the most pivotal event in the history of God's people until Jesus Christ was the exodus and the freedom from slavery. That's the kind of God he is. That's the big story that needs to be told and we need to be reminded of. And then as we come to know Christ, all of a sudden we connect to the story and it becomes our story. We're part of the story. On Wednesday nights at Youth Group, Diana and Tori have been leading uh, uh, the students through a study of the 12 disciples and using kind of a little Instagram account and we talk about the different disciples and some there's a lot of information, others there's very little. This week we learned about Simon the Zealot and that's all there is, the name. (laughs) But we also learned last week about Philip. And we looked at the story, one of the stories about Philip. Now, Philip is the one who brought, uh, brought Nathaniel to Jesus. We read about him in, in Acts 1. But in Acts 8, I mean John 1, in Acts 8, there's a story of Philip who is led by the Holy Spirit to this Ethiopian official, one in charge and cares for King, Queen Candace of Ethiopia. And as the Spirit brings him, Peter hears him reading the word of God. He's reading from the Old Testament. There wasn't a New Testament yet. He asked Peter to explain to him the words that he's reading and what he's reading is from Isaiah 53. He is like a sheep led to slaughter. He was like a sheep led to slaughter as a lamb is silent before its shears. And so he says, well, what is this and who is this talking about? And so Peter then begins, it says in scripture, Peter begins with this passage and then Peter explains the big story. I mean, Philip explains the big story. Philip explains the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And this man begins to get it. He sees himself in the story. This man described in Isaiah 53 has no descendants. And if you know about the Ethiopian, he was an Ethiopian eunuch, meaning that he would physically be unable to ever have descendants. And the Isaiah text speaks of having no descendants. And there's a hopelessness there, and it draws him, and he says, Who is this about? What is this about? Does it have any meaning for me? Says this Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip says, Yes, it does. Let me tell you the whole story and where this fits in the story of salvation. And as the story goes on, this Ethiopian, they, they're, they're riding together and they see a body of water. He says, hey, looks like a great place to be baptized. And so we know in that is his commitment. He, it doesn't say that he prayed the sinner's prayer because <laughs> they didn't have that in the Bible, but he did. <laughs> he did. He said, I, I, I get it now. I, I, my story now makes sense and I want to be baptized And it says the last words about this man was, he goes on his way rejoicing. Now his story of new life in Christ is one that gives him rejoicing. Our story intersects with the word of truth and we become part of the big story as it teaches us, as it forms us, as it renovates us, as it equips us. We come to know who we really, really are. We come to know who we really are, who God made us to be when we connect with that big story. The centrality of the word also has dimensions which are both personal and public. Personally, as a follower of Christ, we, we need to spend time in the word. You probably heard that before, and you do that, a lot of you. We talk about having devotions. But There's a couple other words that start with D to add to that. We have devotions, and we need to go for distance and for depth in our time in God's word. Distance would mean... Um, reading the Bible in a year, <laughs> setting that kind of goal. I'm going I'm to read this many chapters a day and I'm going to read this and I'm going to check them off on a bookmark in my Bible and I'm going to try to take it all in. And that's so helpful sometimes. Or else maybe we would decide to go the distance and we decide that we're, gonna, we're not just going to pick little verses out, we're going to read a whole book, a whole letter. And we're going to look at one of Paul's whole letters and see what is the overall theme of what he's trying to do here so that we can kind of go the distance but understand it. Rather than pulling a text out, one that proves something or one that makes me feel good, we're going to gain a grasp of the whole story. So we sometimes need to be thinking distance and and reading a full breath and reading the parts of the Bible that we've never read before and reading parts that maybe aren't the most exciting but trying to to get a feel for them and see where God's at work in the story. That's going distance. But we also need to go for depth. There's times we need to slow it down and take one passage and read it and reread it. And then step back and ask God to show you something that you've never seen there before, even if you've read it before. And then to approach it again. To ask questions of the Word and ask questions about what is really going on here. And then as you read, to be open to what God might be saying to you at that time. If it's a living Word, it could be that God has something for you from this. We can't necessarily do that when we're going for the distance, but when we go for the depth, could be a time that God might speak to us from the Word, and so in our personal reading of the Word, in our personal efforts to keep it central, we need to take care to do both depth and distance. But there's also a place for the public reading and study of the Word as a body and as a church. The Word in our midst also calls us to declaration and discernment, to declare the Word and to together to discern what the Word is calling us to do. Obviously, it comes here in preaching. It comes in our teaching, our small groups. We make it central to what we're doing in our youth ministry and our children's ministries. But there's even a call in Scripture to make sure that the Word itself is kept central by reading it publicly. That's what Emily just did this morning. We, we almost every single Sunday have a public reading of the Word. Sometimes um, I like to just kind of weave in my text to what I'm preaching, and, and yet we also feel it's important that the Word be spoken. Now, the Word that is proclaimed isn't always what the sermon is on. Most often it is here. Some churches do it even more than a single reading like we do. Some churches will will do more of a liturgical thing. Well, at one point, there's a psalm for the day. There's an Old Testament reading for the day. There's an epistle reading for the day. And the gospel reading for the day. And in liturgical churches, when the gospel is read, you stand. Because scripture calls us to the public reading of the word. Even if we're not preaching on that or teaching it that day, there's something about hearing the word of God and declaring the word of God that's important to the people of God. In 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul instructs his, uh, Paul's sort of a mentor to Timothy and to his mentee, Timothy, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. So I thought, why don't we do that a little bit? I just picked a few passages that have to do with the Word of God and we're just going to read them out loud together. Okay, ready? It'll be on the screen. Okay, here we go. Romans 15:4: "For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope." That's a keeper, isn't it? Yeah. John 6:63: 6, "The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing." The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. And we already sang this, but now we'll say it. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Micah 6, eight, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Luke 11.28 Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. John 7.38 Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then finally from Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. There is in our public gatherings this declaration of the word of God. But there's also an element of discernment as we work with Scriptures. It's part of our corporate, not just reading the word, but our corporate handling of the scriptures together, not just as individuals. Going again back to our roots as covenanters, early covenanters would ask each other this question, where is it written? Well, what's it? What what it are we talking about? Well, it could be a, a doctrinal truth. It could be something that somebody says, I believe God does this. And we say, well, where is it written? Let's go look together. I believe the church, our church needs to go and do this, and that's the it. And so we said, well, where is it written? Let's go to the word for direction. I have a difficult decision to make or we have a difficult decision to make as a body of believers. Where is it written? What help can we get from the word of God? Taking action. uh, What injustices might God be calling us to address? What are the things that God is laying on our heart? Let's take it and run it through Scripture. Not looking for a proof text, but let's all read it together and, and ask God to give us discernment. There's specific things that are very clear in Scripture, but not everything is in Scripture, is it? In fact, Klein Snodgrass, in the same video that I mentioned earlier, says, There are so many things that Scripture does not address directly. As Christians together, we need to keep reading, understanding, and reflecting. None of us has enough comprehension by ourselves to take it all in. That's a responsibility laid on us as a church. Well, the pastor, he went to seminary forever. He went to cemetery, ha, ha, ha. He knows all the Bible answers. We'll just ask him or her. No. No. We all have this responsibility to to be in the word in that personal place and then to bring it to the public place where we say, what is the word of God calling us to do? What does it say about the truths that we ought to be holding to? What is the perspective that God wants to give us as we together read the word and ask, where is it written? There is a sense of discernment that comes as we do that together and keep the word of God central to who we are as a church not just by making sure that it's read on Sunday morning, not just to make sure that our children's curriculum is biblical, but by actually working with the text together and finding discernment. And so there is the personal reading of the Word and the public dimension as well. And I think it's an area we can continue to press into and grow. And finally, there's a connection here between the written Word and the living Word. The difference is pretty clear. The written Word would be the Bible. And you already know the answer to the living Word, right? The answer is... Jesus, good. The answer is Jesus, by the way, in case you thought I was tricking you. It sounds like a squirrel. No, uh, Some of you know that joke, too. But no, seriously, the written word is the, the Bible and the lean word is Jesus. And the Old Testament scriptures point to and the New Testament scriptures proclaim Jesus is the very center of our story. We need the written word. We would not know Christ without the written word. We we depend on this written testimony that God has has safeguarded through history and proclaimed and and led people to discern that this in fact is the inspired word of God and this leads us to Jesus. Jesus is at the very center of the story. And so sometimes we need to use a little bit of caution, be careful not to elevate the Bible itself to a place of worship and revere the Bible so highly that we miss the Savior that it's pointing to. Sometimes we can defend so much the, the veracity and the truth and the, the wonder and the inspired wonder of the Scripture that we forget to elevate even higher the living word that it points to. I found this quote this week that I really like The Bible is the menu, and Jesus is the meal. You wouldn't know what to order without the menu. You've got to have the menu. There's no way to get to the meal without a menu. And explains things carefully. And some restaurants make you go through a long period of discernment, don't they? Especially when you go to an ethnic restaurant and go, I have no idea what any of this is. We're gonna, well, we're going to have to go to a menu study then. We're gathering on Sunday nights for a menu study. <laughs> but we're hungry! And, and it leads us then, though, to Jesus. I love that. The Bible is the menu. Jesus is the meal. Because it took me back just a couple weeks to Easter Sunday and the text that we read in here for Easter Rather than looking at the, the text from that Sunday morning when they discovered the empty tomb, we looked just a few hours later when a couple of the disciples, not part of the 12, but two other guys were walking home to Emmaus. They were discouraged. They were uh, scratching their heads, wondering what had happened and why Jesus had died. And, 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 and they were confused by reports that some had said they'd seen him again. And just as they're doing this, Jesus, the living word, explains to them everything about himself in the written word. It literally says in Luke 24 that Jesus explained to them from the Psalms and the prophets and the law that the Messiah must suffer these things that you just witnessed a few days ago. Jesus weaves together the stories for these disciples. And where do they recognize him? At the meal, with the meal. (laughs) At the table, as he broke bread, they realized This is who the written word has been talking about. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says that they recognize the living Jesus and their hearts are warmed in his presence. They are now experiencing a formation within their hearts and lives that's stirred with a a physical feeling of warming within them that this is the Lord and Savior that we have been looking for. They are in the presence of the living word, but they would not have understood it if it hadn't been for the written word that explained him and pointed to him. The centrality of the written word of God takes us to the higher centrality of the living word, Jesus Christ. The one whom we pursue, the one whose priorities we pursue together. I told you I was going to challenge you during this series. I did last week and I'm going to come with a challenge today. Even though I'm challenging the whole church, this is an individual challenge in terms of you and your personal reading of the scripture. Here's just some suggestions, but do something with the word of God this week in response to this. I know you're all busy people. We all have time to do something now. One thing I would suggest is uh, a psalm a day. It would take you... 150 days. (laughs) We provide you a way to pray every day. If you don't know how to pray, pray a psalm. Some of them are wonderful. They're joy-filled and they exalt God. Some of them are like really difficult. Some of them, the psalmist is mad. Some of them, he is feeling dejected and downcast. That can be a prayer of lament too. In certain days, we need to be there. Let the psalms be a prayer for your day and ask God to show himself in that. And then I said this last week, I was going to say pick a book, but I'm going to say Pick a gospel. There's four. You have four choices. <laughs> don't, do, don't do like you were in school and pick the shortest one, okay? I know how that works. What's the easiest one? which has the least big words in it? Pick any of the Gospels and just start reading. No plan. You don't have to set an end goal when it's going to be done, but just start reading the Gospels. Even if you're doing something else in your devotional life, just say, I'm also going to read a, go- a chapter of Matthew, Mark, Luke. And when you do it, look for Jesus. I don't mean like, oh, there he is on the page. I mean, Look for what he might be teaching. What, what in terms of your story might he be saying to you today? Okay, and when you find something, tell somebody. Here's where it begins to affect the corporate setting. Share that. You know, I was reading chapter 6 of Luke today, and I saw this. You know, I have never seen before in the second chapter of John, after the water and wine thing, where Jesus said this. Pick a gospel, read it, and tell somebody else what you found. We have here a little checklist. I'm going to check off centrality of the word, not because we got it all down, but because we have talked about it and we've issued a challenge and we're going to keep it at the center of who we are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for the living word. We thank you for this written word that it comes to life, that you have formed it by your spirit. We thank you for the authors that you inspired and moved to write these words. And we thank you that you've seen fit that we can have this as a text and as a, a collection of writings that becomes so much more. Thank you that there is a meta narrative and there's a big story that you've invited us into. And Jesus, we thank you that you are at the very center of that. And so, Lord, as we move forward into being more faithful readers and digesters of the written word, that, Lord Jesus, it might put you more and more at the center of who we are as well. We ask this and we pray it in your name. Amen.